Good afternoon, everybody. I must say it's a real pleasure to see that the auditorium is uh, more or less overcrowded. This is exactly how we would like the day to be at the University of Oslo. First of all, I would say that the topic for this particular lecture is extremely timely. So, of course, you knew beforehand, those who organized this meeting, that the Peace Prize would be handed out to the European Union, as it was earlier this month. And, of course, uh, the timeliness of the lecture is also uh, enhanced by the fact that just a few days ago, a white paper was submitted from the government to our parliament on the relationship between Norway and the European Union and Europe. And also, I would say that uh, Europe has been much in evidence on this campus over the last few weeks. Just the first day after the Peace Prize was handed out over the Minister of Foreign Affairs, gave a lecture on Europe, on the campus here, on a Saturday, on a cold Saturday. And the auditorium was full, completely full. 400 people attended the lecture of the Foreign Minister. And also, I think it's uh, highly relevant to say that uh, today we had a meeting where we discussed the University of Oslo's policy in regard to uh, the Bicentennial coming up in two years from now. How to profile the university and how to uh, communicate all the research that's being, that is being done here on democracy and on our constitution. So this lecture is extremely timely. And we are very glad to see you here, Jan Werner Müller, out of Princeton. Welcome here for the first time since you were five, I understand. Six. Six, years. Six years. <laughs> so the formalities are as follows. It's important to note that uh, this is part of a series of lectures. And um, the idea of having a series of lectures, 1814 lectures, came from um, the research committee on um, the uh, Constitution by Centennial. And uh, Mesta, Professor Mesta, is the head of this uh, particular uh, committee. And then the Research Council came into the picture, of course, together with Fritur, with the universities. And also on this university, Arena is a very, very important uh, player when it comes to this uh, this particular event. So many people are behind this event and uh, we are very excited to know what you will tell us about the uh, about democracy in Europe and uh, about what has happened since um, the last or since the post world war when it comes to the development of democracy in Europe. So uh, we are very glad that uh, you are here, and uh, I would just say that um, there is time now to have a introduction of our uh, speaker. So uh, please, Professor Smith. Thank you, Rector. Citizens, welcome to keep in line with the 1814 way of addressing people. We're now going to enjoy the second of the 1814 lectures, and the theme of all of our lectures is freedom, a challenging concept of several concepts. A central aspect of the lectures is to relate historical and modern discussions of the Norwegian constitution to international developments. The speakers have been carefully selected to add current international academic and practical perspectives. For the Constitutional Assembly in 1814, freedom was a key notion. It's the first word of the introduction to the most important draft for a Norwegian constitution by Johan Gunder Adler and Christian Magnus Falsen. Really the first word. Adler and Falsen went on to say that political freedom is, quote, the core content of the natural and inalienable rights with which every human is born. The challenge of constitution-making, they say, is to safeguard that freedom. Today, in countries where people now 
in the aftermath of the Arabic Spring, struggle to develop new constitutions to safeguard freedom is still the key challenge. And it's my hope that this series of lectures will add perspectives to the understanding of Norway's constitutional past and future, and provoke new research and discussions in the time leading up to the 2014 celebrations. Today's speaker, Professor Jan-Werner Müller from Princeton, is excellently situated to add such perspectives. He's written extensively on 20th and 21st century political theory and its practical implications, especially in Europe, and that means all of Europe, including Central and East Europe. And his last book, Contesting Democracy, from last year, is a short less than two or three hundred pages, short but full account of all the important moving political ideas of the 20th century. One thing that it does is to relate well-known political theories and political actions and events uh, to one another in a new insight-giving combination, and adding to that new research on a political intermediary level. The book is an intellectual thriller, and the plot is still unfolding before our eyes in Europe today. With such intellectual background, it comes as no surprise that Professor Müller also comments on current political issues, like the Euro crisis, US relations, EU's relations with Hungary, for example. Müller is Professor of Politics, and has previously written, among other things, on German intellectuals and on Karl Schmitt, one of the intellectuals, of course, that villain of legal and political theory, and on Christian democratic parties. And he studied at Freie Universität uh, Berlin, Berlin, as well as in London, Oxford, and at Princeton, and his research and taught at several other academic institutions. After the lecture, there will be time for some questions and comments, leading on to a reception where everyone is welcome. It's a pleasure to give the floor to you and your lecture, Fear and Freedom, the Legacy of Mid-20th Century Liberalism. Please. Just on the uh, Nobel Prize, unfortunately this seems to be, for some people, to become a matter of be careful what you wish for. You just think back to the person who won in 09 and what happened to all his peace initiatives ever since. So much so that the New York Times commented uh, just a couple of weeks ago, beware of Scandinavians bearing gifts. But that's just uh, a side comment. Um, in response to the very, very kind introductions, um, I'm very grateful to the Norwegian Research Council to have invited me. I'm glad to have the chance to learn more about Europe's oldest written constitution, and I thank all of you for coming today. I want to start off by talking about two mid-20th century liberal thinkers who, it so happens, were born in the same place, not too far away from here, in Riga, and who both also, as children, went into exile because their parents were fleeing from the Soviet regime. They eventually both ended up in what you might call the commanding heights of Western academia, because one of them, Isaiah Berlin, became a professor of political theory at Oxford, and the other one, somewhat less known, Judith Schklar, S-H-K-L-A-R, ended up as a professor of government at Harvard. They articulated what has sometimes been called a particularly negative liberalism, or what Schklar herself called a liberalism of fear. And I'll explain in just a minute what exactly that means. A liberalism, however, also, which I think it's fair to say, has fallen a little bit out of favor, at least in academia. Why? Well, two reasons, essentially. First, because a number of critics think that while their liberalism was by no means what you might nowadays call neoliberalism, it nevertheless might have paved the way for what you might term 
a neoliberal narrowing of an understanding of liberty. A narrowing which essentially results in the powerful being licensed to dominate the poor. And the second worry that a lot of people have had about this kind of liberalism is that it might disconnect liberty and democracy. That it might at best give democracy a kind of instrumental role in safeguarding liberty, but with a relatively weak theoretical or, if you like, conceptual link to liberty itself. Now, what I want to argue in the first part of my lecture today is that this particular liberalism and these particular two thinkers still have a lot to teach us, in particular as far as the difficult relationship between fear and freedom is concerned. In the second half of my lecture, I want to radically change gears and shift to a more general historical discussion, a discussion of the particular post-war political order that essentially continental Western Europeans created after 1945, an order that in many important ways was then extended to Central and Eastern Europe after 1989, and a kind of, if you like, institutional architecture, an institutional building, which most Europeans still inhabit today. Now, two caveats. First of all, I'm not saying that either Berlin or Schlar had anything directly to do with the erection of this particular building. All I'm saying is that their ideas can help us make sense of this particular kind of architecture. Secondly, I'm really mainly talking about continental Europe. So prima facie, I'm excluding the United Kingdom, I am excluding Scandinavia, but one thing I also will end up saying is that the European Union, in many ways, was an important extension of this particular post-war political order, so that those who are in the EU, or those who are not, but in a certain way may be subject to the EU, might still be somehow subsumed under this order, or certainly have something to do with it. And very at the very last, at the very at the very end of the lecture, I want to talk about some of the particular challenges which this order faces today, challenges which are very often articulated in the language of both individual and collective freedom. And I want to suggest a way for us how to address these challenges and how to think about them productively. But first, as promised, let me take you back to what must be the most famous, possibly the most influential, single text or single lecture in the history of thinking and talking about liberty in the 20th century, at least in the West, namely the lecture that was delivered almost exactly 54 years ago in October 1958 in Oxford by Isaiah Berlin, the lecture that, as many probably all of you know, that had the title Two Concepts of Liberty. There, of course, Berlin famously distinguished what he called negative liberty on the one hand and positive <coughs> liberty on the other. Just to briefly recap, if I may, Berlin essentially drew a distinction between, on the one hand, the ideal or the idea of non-interference, of not being coerced by other people, of not having obstacles placed in one's way by other people, and on the other hand, what was variously described in the lecture as the ideal of self-mastery, or self-determination, or even self-realization. Ideals which, perhaps in a different register of concepts, we might, might redescribe as on the one hand autonomy, and on the other hand authenticity. Now as Berlin himself pointed out at the beginning of his lecture, these two different concepts really were responses to two quite different questions. Negative liberty, according to Berlin, was an answer to the following question. This is from Berlin. What is the area within which the subject should be without interference by other persons. Whereas, according to Berlin, positive liberty was really an answer to the question, again, this is a direct quote from Berlin, what or who 
is the source of interference that can determine someone to do or be this rather than that. Now, as is well known, in this lecture, Berlin was mainly warning about the possible dangers and distortions of the ideal of positive liberty. In particular, he was, of course, saying that the ideal of collective self-mastery could turn into the collective enslavement of people. In particular, if one held the view that the individual human personality could be split in two, so to speak, into a lower self and a higher rational autonomous self that got to be in charge of controlling the lower self, the lower self being characterized by base desires, for instance, and that if one transferred this authority of the higher self onto a collective, one could easily end up with some form of collective enslavement. Berlin, in a sense, was also giving us a thriller or a kind of whodunit, and the prime suspect, and indeed the perpetrator, turned out to be, of course, Rousseau, uh, with his supposedly nefarious idea that you could force people to be free. Now, it's often been said that Berlin was simply caricaturing, that nobody really talked like this at the time. Not entirely true. Let me just, if I may, very briefly give you one example. In 1925, Guido de Ruggiero, by all accounts a good liberal, was writing the following. Quote, Negative freedom consisted in denying all authority and all law. The new positive freedom consists in transferring the source of authority and law to the intimacy of one's own mind. To be a law to oneself, or in other words, autonomous. So far so good, but after a little bit of more of fancy theoretical footwork, De Ruggiero ends up with the following conclusion. Again, a quote. The state, the organ of coercion par excellence, has become the highest expression of liberty. So pretty much the kind of thing that Berlin was gesturing at, and what he was defending against this ideal, although maybe not with an entirely fortunate choice of German words, was what he called Lebensraum for each individual. Now, from the very beginning, as many of you know, this lecture has been severely criticized. Already in 1960, an American analytical philosopher was saying that the lecture had been, quote, less an event in philosophy than in the Cold War. And to this day, there have been many voices who have said that when everything is stripped away, this is ultimately an ideological defense of capitalism. Or that ultimately this amounts to what the philosopher Raymond Goys has recently called a police concept of liberty. A police concept almost literally in the sense that it sort of indicates the time when you have to call the police because bourgeois barriers are being breached. Now, what I think is important to recognize, or to remember for that matter, is that, yes, of course, Berlin was very suspicious of the ideal of positive liberty. But, he was, but what he was also saying was, first of all, that this was nevertheless a genuine political ideal. And even more so, that it was a genuine political ideal within the liberal tradition. Already in March 1959, when criticism was mounting, even from close friends and intimates of Berlin, he was writing in a letter, in a private letter, to Karl Popper. I'm quoting, The whole of my lecture, in a sense, is an attempt at a brief study of the way in which innocent or virtuous or truly liberating ideas tend, not inevitably, exclamation mark, to become authoritarian and despotic and lead to enslavement and slaughter when they are isolated and driven ahead by themselves. The other thing that I think is insufficiently recognized is that Berlin, contrary to what some critics have been saying, was actually not engaged in a kind of pure conceptual analysis, saying this is what liberty at all times really is. His lecture, in a sense, was very self-consciously self historicizing. He was really saying, this is what liberty has come to mean for us. 
This is how ideals of liberty have played out in history. So I think he would have been not too uncomfortable with the essentially Nietzschean insight that concepts are really frozen conflicts, are really, in a sense, frozen struggles over their proper meaning. So what Berlin, in a sense, was then also advocating was the position that the liberal tradition itself was, if you like, an argument or a conflict, an internal argument and an internal conflict. And it was also here, then, that Berlin was playing what you might call his ethical trump card. His ethical trump card was the doctrine of value pluralism. The idea that not all values are compatible, and that even more so, not all values are commensurable or can be meaningfully compared with each other. It was because of this, because of this conflictual nature of values, that ultimately any imposition of the one correct and truly rational set of values onto a collective, according to Berlin, was automatically dubious and ultimately illegitimate. But there was more to what he was saying than simply this basic, if you like, anti-authoritarian impulse, the impulse or imperative not to impose values. There was also a broader, if you like, imperative, or maybe even ethics, of what you might call conceptual separation. As Berlin famously put it in the lecture, everything is what it is. Liberty is liberty, not equality. Fairness or justice or culture. Hence also his famous fondness for Butler's famous words, everything is what it is and not another thing. So there was a very clear injunction against what on the one hand you can call conceptual conflation and on the other hand conceptual inflation or imperialism. And ultimately a strong opposition to the whole drive towards the opposite of value pluralism, namely value monism. The idea that there is one master value that could trump all other values, or there could be any sort of unproblematic hierarchy of values, or the sense that all values could maybe be reduced to one value. Anything of that was clearly anathema to Berlin. Now, you might say, well, but what's the big deal with that? Uh, it's not really terribly plausible to say that anybody who is a monist uh, will sort of think like this today and will open some kind of gulag tomorrow. That simply, simply seems a complete exaggeration of the potential dangers of something like monism. After all, some of our most famous liberal philosophers today are, in fact, monists, as many of you will know. Well, I think what Berlin was warning against was somewhat more subtle. First of all, he was essentially warning that monism, or a kind of gradual move towards monism, could lead to a tendency to misunderstand or misapprehend our moral and political experience. That we might lose a real sense of when, in fact, we have sacrificed or eliminated values for the benefit of what we might think of as more important values. And that in a certain way, the worst thing that could happen, apart from the gulag, of course, was what you might call a loss of a sense of loss. In other words, the tendency not even to recognize anymore that one might have sacrificed certain values, that it becomes unthinking or even unconscious. Second, I think there was an insight that this kind of tendency might also significantly impoverish our theory building more broadly, our thinking about social and political matters, that it might lead to a kind of loss of conceptual and normative resources over time. And against this, I think Berlin would have stood with his fellow philosopher, Bernard Williams, who at one point said, quote, theory typically uses the assumption that we have too many ethical <coughs> ideas some of which may well turn out to be prejudices. Our major problem, this is Williams, our major problem is actually that we have not too many, but too few, and we need to cherish as many as we can. 
Thirdly, I think what Berlin was warning against was the tendency that monism could lead to a certain kind of disrespect in political argument. We're still not there at the level of totalitarianism or anything. It's simply a way of saying that those who believe in monism end up saying things like, look, we're not having a political argument. You're just confused. You just don't realize that you know all these values do ultimately fit together in the right way, and I'm going to show you how to do that. But of course, at the very extreme, there is then the ultimate, the ultimate step of monism, according to Berlin, namely that indeed you end up imposing one scheme of values on people and essentially always tell them, look, we can do this because you haven't lost anything. You haven't lost liberty because everything fits together and we have the perfect scheme of rational values. Now, very briefly, if I may allow me a detour to address what you might call the Republican, or forgive the jargon, the neo-Roman anxiety about all this. And here, of course, I'm trying to gesture back to the extremely distinguished first uh, lecturer in the, in the 1814 series. Republicans, of course, folks, quite some time now, have been saying that this ideal of negative liberty, of non-interference, is vulnerable to a situation where you might indeed not have anybody interfering with you, but somebody could interfere with you at their own pleasure. Some master is out there who, if he decides, if he or she decides not to be nice to you anymore, then you have a kind of invasion of the, forgive me using the term, Lebensraum that Berlin was trying to protect. Hence the imperative by Republicans to say that interference, non-interference, needs to be resilient, needs to be properly protected, and that ultimately what we should really worry about is people having a status as free and independent citizens. Now, I think there are three things to be said about this, uh, three concerns I have about this. First of all, I have no disagreement with the underlying intuition here. I think the thought is perfectly right. However, it seems to me that most liberals would be perfectly happy and willing to concede that non-interference in a situation of dependency already indeed signifies a loss of freedom. That if I constantly have to worry about what the powerful might do or how some master might interfere with me, I'm already adapting my behavior in a way that surely can no longer be called free. In that sense, on this occasion, fear really signifies a loss of freedom. And hence also Berlin's injunction, quite explicit in the lecture, to erect what he called absolute barriers to the imposition of one man's will on another. So I'm not convinced that there really is, let's say, an entirely separate freestanding concept of liberty that's, that needs to be brought into play here. Second, however, it seems to me that at least among some Republican thinkers, there is a tendency to conflate liberty with the conditions of liberty. It seems to me important to say that we want all our cherished values and ideals and the exercise of these values and ideals to be as secure as possible. But the security of the exercise is something different than the values themselves. So it's potentially dangerous to end up saying something like liberty is security. And it's an example of the kind of conceptual conflation or imperialism that Berlin was warning against. Thirdly, none of us, I take it, is against independence. But independence in a complex and, you might say, interdependent world can itself become a problematic ideal, especially if you insist on the point that all possibilities of interference with you have to be essentially a matter of zero probability. It really has to become impossible for somebody else to breach the barriers that protect your individual space. And it seems to me that the drive to eliminate all risks of interference, uh, to limit, uh, to, to, sorry, to liberate us entirely from fear in a certain way, in itself, can become 
a fearful prospect, that the search for an entirely foolproof liberty in certain instances might turn out to be foolish. Now, let me give you an example to bring home the intuition. What would it have meant during the Cold War to say, we need to bring down the probability of interference with our free way of life, we need to bring that probability down to zero? I think it's fair to say you probably would have had to invade the Soviet Union and China, etc., etc. Or another example, think of what in the United States was for a while known as the 1% doctrine, mostly associated with, associated with the leading liberal political philosopher Dick Cheney. You recall that the idea here was that even if there's only a tiny chance of a terrorist attack, we must do everything possible. We must go all the way in eliminating this 1% chance. And I think by now we have a pretty good idea of where that kind of reasoning can lead. So it seems to me, rather than necessarily always striving for impossibility, we need an assessment of probabilities, of what fears are in some sense rational and what are not, what dangers are probable and which ones are not. All of which is really just another and maybe rather banal way of saying we need to bring in an element of political judgment. And ideally, we also need to bring here in here a democratic element, because these judgments and a certain balancing of values, perhaps, ought to be subject to democratic processes and procedures. But, to be sure, it's messy. And that messiness was not least acknowledged by someone like Berlin himself, who at one point said, the dilemma is logically insoluble. We cannot sacrifice either freedom or the organization of its defense or a minimum standard of welfare. The way out must therefore lie in some logically untidy, flexible, and even ambiguous compromise. And it's words like this, flexible, ambiguous, untidy, that of course have nourished the suspicions of anti-liberals who have long held that liberalism is always a kind of wishy-washy matter, in fact doesn't really accept the idea of absolute barriers, might be too willing to compromise under certain circumstances. A kind of intuition that's nicely captured by a phrase that was recently used by Raymond Goyce, who I already mentioned, um, who in a recent essay uses the wonderful phrase, or talks about, quote, the tepid and slimy puddle created by Locke, J.S. Mill, and Isaiah Berlin. All right, very briefly, let me say a few words about the other liberal thinker that I promised to talk about, Judith Schlamm. She became most famous, I think it's fair to say, for the concept of a liberalism of fear. A liberalism that, according to her, was all about preventing the worst. A liberalism that was all about, you might say, damage control. What was the worst? Well, in Schlaar's account, the worst that humans were capable of was cruelty. And she saw cruelty exemplified in the totalitarian regimes of 20th century Europe in particular. Hence, she also famously said, the faculty of mind on which the liberalism of fear mostly draws is memory, the memory of cruelties in particular. Now, why liberalism of fear exactly? Well, here's the interesting twist. Fear played, if you like, an ambiguous, again, there's ambiguity, or, put more nicely, a double role in Strauss liberalism. On the one hand, she was absolutely clear that, as she put it once, we need to fear a society of fearful people, because fearful people, according to her, will eventually opt for authoritarian or even totalitarian solutions and then engage in acts of cruelty. But at the same time, she was insisting that liberals need to exhibit a certain amount of fear themselves, they need to be concerned about and care for liberal institutions. They need to engage in what my colleague Philip Pettit has called civic invigilation, keeping an eye on things, being somewhat afraid of what can, uh, of what can happen. In that sense, I think, Schla was 
engaging or reviving a tradition of liberal thought that one can already see in someone like Tocqueville, who had, for instance, distinguished, I'm quoting, a salutary fear which makes men keep watch and ward for freedom from what, on the other hand, he called flabby idle terror, which makes men's hearts sink and enervates them. And now for something completely different. Having put all these situations on the table, let me, as I promised, shift to post-war Europe. And let me try to explain what the things I've been talking about so far have to do with the particular evolution of post-war, as I said, particularly continental Europe. Now, I think it's not particularly uncontroversial to say that the kind of institutional architecture that was created in initially the core countries of Western Europe, then eventually also in Southern Europe, and then after 89 in Central and Eastern Europe, bore what you might call a deeply anti-totalitarian imprint. But the interesting thing to note, it seems to me, is that it was a very specific image of totalitarianism that played a role here. It was the image of totalitarianism that to some degree aligns with that of Berlin, and that essentially sees totalitarianism as a matter of unconstrained, completely unconstrained collective subjects engaging in very coercive measures, both of self-mastery and in attempts to collectively master history. Hence, the very, very widespread tendency after 1945 to somehow say, look, totalitarianism and democracy are different, but there is a link. And precisely because both involve a notion of collective agency, one can understand totalitarianism as, if you like, a deformation of democracy. Hence, and this is the crucial point, hence the very widespread attempt to essentially constrain collective subjects after 1945, to create what I have called a constrained democracy that was erected on the basis of a very, very deep fear of popular sovereignty. And not only that, but even a very deep fear of parliamentary sovereignty. Because after all, what did parliaments, unconstrained parliaments, always end up doing in the eyes of the architects of the post-45 order? Well, they give all the power to people like Hitler or Marshal Petain. Hence the importance of not just constraining the demos as a whole, but even constraining the major representation of the demos. No crowdsourcing of constitutions in those days. No constitutional conventions with you know, as many people as possible drawn from all walks of life as possible, as we've now recently seen in Iceland and will see in Ireland. Now, to make good on this intuition concretely, I would argue the architects of this post-war European order created a quite novel system of checks and balances, and they came up with a number of institutional innovations, the most important of which is the institution of a constitutional court that were explicitly meant to constrain the demos and that were also tasked with securing individual rights. And what stood behind this architecture furthermore was, I think, a desire, an image, to essentially have a balancing of different political values within a fixed and unmovable constitutional framework. I think that partly explains why, if you look at many post-war constitutions, freedom does not come first. As you all know, what very often comes first is dignity. But that's by no means the same as freedom. Although sometimes there's an explicit attempt to link the two or to derive one from the other. Think, for instance, of the Polish Constitution, the 1997 Polish Constitution, which, among other things, says, the inherent and inalienable dignity of the person shall constitute a source of freedoms. But what you have much more often 
and I'm not telling you anything remotely new here, is a kind of list of values, which then for the most part, constitutional courts will end up balancing in one way or the other. Spain, for instance, justice, liberty, and security. Greece, life, honor, and liberty, and so on, and so forth. Now, what I want to drive home as a point is that the European Union does not constitute in some way the opposite of this post-war model, but rather an extension of it to the supranational level. It's not the only thing the European Union has done, but one of the important things that both the EU and, of course, the Council of Europe ended up doing was to, if you like, add another layer of constraints, mostly in the area of rights protection. Now, having said all that, it might sound like I'm painting the picture of a deeply illiberal, anti-freedom sort of post-war constitutional order. That's not my intention. And above all, of course, very often, these orders were quite explicitly justified by people saying or reiterating a point that will be familiar to many of you from work that has been done in constitutional theory for the last 20, 30 years. Namely, that, of course, constraints, while on the one hand limiting freedom, can, on the other hand, of course, also create freedom or freedoms. They can enable action precisely by securing a stable constitutional framework and then creating options for people to act in their own manner within that, within that framework. All right, let me briefly, let me, let me close this second chapter of the lecture and let me, if I may, fast forward to the present, or if you prefer the term, the history of the present. What exactly do we worry about today when we worry about freedom? seems to me a number of these worries could be interpreted as quite specifically challenges to the post-war order which I've just outlined. I don't think that today we worry all that much about the Berlinian image of collective self-enslavement in the name of some ideal of self-mastery. I don't think that's our concern anymore. I also don't think that we worry quite so much about the kind of Republican image, that there is a master or potential tyrant out there who is going to interfere with us in some arbitrary way, which is not to deny that there are indeed instances of what can only be called slavery within Western societies. Think of human trafficking and other rights violations, which de facto amount to something very similar. Still, it seems to me when we worry about freedom today, we mainly worry about something that could be described as an anxiety about a loss of collective freedom. Or, put differently and hopefully more clearly, a worry that democracies are becoming ever more constrained. More constrained day by day. And that more particularly, we're ever more at the mercy of forces which we fail to fully understand. We can debate whether transparency, social transparency, is or is not a precondition for either individual or, for that matter, collective freedom. But I think it is a very widespread anxiety that there is a sense of victimhood at the mercy of, well, to give you the most obvious example, the markets. That there is a real fear of the markets, not only, but certainly, in Europe today, and that the rise of new political and social forces, which have taken many people by surprise, and which I think we're still struggling to make sense of, can only be explained by reference to these kinds of anxieties and fears. People nowadays, nowadays often talk about the rise of populism across Europe as a whole. It's become conventional wisdom that, you know, on the one we have technocracy, on the other hand, we have the rise of populism. It seems to be a mistake to identify right-wing populism, as we see it in France in particular, but also in a number of other countries, with a demand for more popular participation, or for an empowerment of the people. I think populists are succeeding partly because they actually have a point 
in saying that the post-war European order was, in a deep sense, anti-populist and was against the empowerment of collectives. But what actually these kinds of populists most, uh, mostly end up doing, or what they really want, isn't actually an empowerment of the people. They're not really against representation. They're not really against elites. They just want different elites. Purer elites, elites which are more in tune with you know, the authentic soul of the people, or what have you, or what cliche you can think of. But that, I would say, isn't really the phenomenon that has anything to do with these wider anxieties. I think what is an astonishing phenomenon, and that really links precisely to this demand for transparency and not being at the mercy of not just uncontrollable but incomprehensible forces, is the rise of things like pirate parties, which, as you all know, are all about the demand for transparency and things like informational self-determination. It seems to me they've partly caught the imagination of publics in Europe because there is this deep anxiety about a loss of collective freedom, particularly rooted in a lack of transparency. Now, if you are a neoliberal, I think the answer to these kinds of problems is simply, where are you going to put up with it? My crown witness for that, uh, sort, of, uh, for that sort of insight would be none other than Friedrich von Hayek himself, who at one point said, I'm quoting, man in a complex society can have no choice but between adjusting himself to what to him must seem the blind forces of the social process and obeying the orders of a superior. So what are we being told here? We're being told here that if you want transparency and clarity, you've got to have authoritarianism. There everything is clear. One person is in charge, or a distinct elite is in charge. If you want to have liberty, you've got to have complexity. And that means you can't understand it. And you just have to kind of imagine yourself to be at the mercy of these blind forces. So where to go from here? How to make sense of this, and especially how to make sense of this and how to talk about this, while bearing in mind the historical account, thriller maybe, that I've been trying to lay out for you, which you might or might not agree with. Seems to me a plausible way to conceptualize this would be to say that what is needed today is neither a radical extension of the post-war constitutional settlement nor an entire rejection of this post-war constitutional settlement. What do I mean? Well, by saying that there could be a radical extension of this post-war constitutional settlement, I'm essentially referring to what is nowadays, in the context of the EU, simply, but somewhat mysteriously, since nobody quite spells out what is meant, what is simply known as political union. At least one version of this, it seems to me, would amount to a constitutionalization, a fixing of a particular neoliberal economic regime. It hasn't happened yet that way. It might not happen. It might not be the gravest danger, but it's something that would exhibit a certain continuity with some of the developments I've been talking about, although a kind of continuity that, if anything, would exacerbate this sense of a loss of collective freedom and the fear of forces we can't control. On the other hand, it's of course conceivable that the entire post-war European order could be rejected in a way that, in quite radical ways, in places like Iceland, to some degree, maybe in Ireland, whole constitutional orders have been questioned and maybe will be rejected in the name of some ideal of collective freedom. Maybe of the 100%, maybe of the 99%, maybe of the 47%, who knows? Who knows what the collective in question will be? But it's an ideal that could be in play. Now let me, by way of conclusion, again point to history to get out of what I think would be a very unfortunate opposition of only having these two options on the table. One of the things that I've argued in the book that was point, kindly pointed to in the introductions is that this post-war constitutional order actually already underwent two very, very fundamental challenges after 1945. One was, for shorthand, 68, and the other one was neoliberalism. 
Now, both of these had enormous impact, but they didn't really change the core constitutional architecture that was put in place after 1945, even though some of the participants, some of the leaders of 68, let's say, or people like Hayek, would have wanted to see a quite radical revision of the post-war constitutional settlement. But I would argue that didn't really happen. So what did happen, and what can we learn from it? I think what 68 was really about was clearly the questioning of unauthorized, or if you prefer, illegitimate forms of social and political authority, most famously or infamously patriarchy and other more or less authoritarian institutions within society, including, of course, I think it's fair enough to say this here, universities. And neoliberalism, where it succeeded in countries like Great Britain, where it really had a profound impact, in a sense, caught on because people felt that there was unauthorized social and political power on the part of trade unions. Now, we might or might not agree with this picture, but nevertheless, I think to the extent that the neoliberal project had legitimacy, it was precisely because it made a credible, credible claim to say that there were social actors who weren't elected, weren't accountable, and who yet essentially could hold entire societies hostage. Again, never mind whether that's an accurate picture or not of what actually, what actually happened. So it seems to me the lesson to draw maybe from these two instances is that the way to, or, or the, 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 the focus to have, is not on, let's say, a radical revision of the post-war constitutional settlement itself, but is rather to ask who today are the unauthorized social and political actors who somehow need to be tamed or maybe authorized or maybe reauthorized. And of course, the obvious answer that I think many of us would give would be something like, well, the markets or large firms or other actors who clearly have a great deal of influence, who can interfere with our lives in ways that many people have regarded, have come to regard as illegitimate. So I hope we can talk about this uh, in more detail in the discussion. And please don't ask me why Norway isn't more in my book. Thank you very much indeed for your attention.